Father, as we look upon the vast landscape of the culture of the world we live in and of the many voices that beg for our attention, we are reminded of your scriptures which tell us that there are many winds that blow across the surface of human understanding and our fallenness, and these are nothing more than shifting winds of doctrine, heresies, philosophies, idols, and lies that attempt us and distract us. And Lord, no matter how many there are, no matter how they are multiplied by technology, by the cultural situation and so forth, we have this assurance and promise that your word speaks louder than all of them. If only the Holy Spirit would tune our ears to hear, our spiritual ears to hear, and would open our spiritual eyes to see the truth that would judge them all, the truth that would transcend them all, the truth that would hold each one, Lord, up to the standard of your righteousness and judge whether they are worthy or whether they should be cast down, taken into captivity to the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the power, the virtue, the value of your holy word. And it is in times like these that we are so thankful for its refuge, for its clarity, for its power, for its immutability, for its perspicuity, its understandability, Lord. Because of your word, we stand today, no matter how difficult and dark things get. We thank you, Lord, for this truth, and we pray that you would write it upon the tables of our hearts. Give us the ability, Lord, not only to stand in a day where our faith is threatened, but to do more, to proclaim the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord to a culture that's dying, to a world that is lost and in need of salvation. And I pray, Lord, under these conditions that your kingdom would advance, taking ground for your glory and for your name's sake. Encourage us today as we turn back many pages in history to to when the Psalms were written. That even then, there were servants of you that stood in their day and proclaimed the truth that continues as relevant now as it was when it was written. Encourage your hearts and build us up in the faith. Finally, if there there is anyone within the hearing of this message that has not bowed the knee to the only voice of truth and the way and the life, Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray that you would draw them unto salvation through the proclamation of your holy scriptures. Do all this, we pray, to the praise of our Lord and Savior's great name, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning I invite you to turn to Psalm 92. We have the privilege of beholding God's holy word this morning in our psalm series. And for this installment, we turn to Psalm 92, which is entitled, A Psalm, A Song for the Sabbath. So I have titled my message this morning simply, Sabbath Song. This is a song written for worship on the Lord's Day, and since this is the Lord's Day, our message today, our psalm today, applies to, yes, the very moments we have set aside to gather with one another and to gather in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, this the first day of each week. This is the first day of this week as we do each week. The aim of this morning's message is to equip us to recognize and to inspire us to offer true worship and praise to our God. Again, the goal, I believe, of Psalm 92, and therefore my message this morning, is to equip us, to give us the tools to both recognize and to inspire us to offer true worship and praise to our God. We need these tools, do we not? We live in a world where many things are considered praiseworthy by popular opinion, but they may or may not, but the only way we know is by comparing them to the standard of God's Word. And so by Psalm 92, as a standard in our knowledge in our discernment toolbox, if you will, we can and recognize, and more than this, we can be inspired, moved to offer to the Lord praise and worship that is worthy of His holy name. 
Would you stand with me again out of reverence this morning for the reading of God's holy word as we consider these scriptures together today? 15 verses, Psalm 92. Let us open God's holy infallible word in verse 1 under this title, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath, thus continues the holy word of God. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. What inspired the author of Psalm 92 to pen these words, to write this song, to encourage the church at that time with this offering of praise to the Lord? It was indeed the works of the Lord to date that captivated the psalmist's sanctified attention. These works, we have read of them in our Genesis series, write the destruction of the world, showcasing God's righteousness and the punishment worthy of sin, the creation of the same in those six days that preceded the story of Noah, where Adam was created on that sixth day, the seventh day the Lord rested. Of course, we have the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt, God's sovereign intervention, He is showing His wonders through the testimony of His servant Moses, defeating the king of kings of that age, Pharaoh, and showing Himself to be the only true king of kings as Pharaoh is defeated by plagues one after another until at the count of ten He finally lets His people go. It was these things that motivated the psalmist to draw His well of inspiration from in this song of worship, drawing from the well of inspiration of God's holy works and captivating the sanctified attention of this servant of the Lord. These exalted themes reached soaring heights in the minds and hearts of the true worshipers of Jesus Christ long ago before they even knew His name. They nevertheless were introduced to the nature and character of God through this record of His faithfulness to God's people, and so they praised Him for His mighty works. The force and beauty of Psalm 92, however, it stands to reason, is only increased through the ages. As the works of God have been multiplied in history through God's providence and multiplied in redemption through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord in the incarnation and His work on Calvary and all that ensued in His ministry here on earth. That is to say, new covenant revelation breathes depth into Psalm 92 beyond the imagination of its original author, no doubt, and it graces the modern reader with exponential understanding that ought to lead 
to even more overflowing and inestimable joy. Truly our Lord has made us glad beyond measure by His saving work on Calvary, by His, Jesus Christ, by His resurrection and ascension, by His ever-expanding body, the body of Christ, which is now singing songs like this all around the globe. As Spurgeon says, Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying the following, Christians may take even a higher flight, for they celebrate complete redemption. Christians are lifted, if you will, to even higher heights through the implications of Psalm 92 than believers at this time would have enjoyed because of the fulfillment of what was expected in the Old Covenant revealed in Jesus Christ. Psalm 92 provides us an eternal standard Uh, Additionally, to judge the quality of our expressions of praise and worship. There is praise and worship is a common phrase, it's a common term used today. There's a whole genre of music that's labeled praise and worship. Very popular songs. Do they meet the standard of true worship? True Christ-exalting language? Well, Psalm 92 gives us tools to judge if they do or not. May our hearts... And creative passions be stirred to the glorious, by the glorious acts of our Most High God. Just as the author of Psalm 92 was. May our hearts and our creative passions be stirred by the glorious acts of our God. Which is, let me submit in the end, the final accounting, the only redeeming theme. Spurgeon goes on to say in his commentary on this psalm, quote, Fine music without devotion is but a splendid garment upon a corpse. Fine music without devotion is but a splendid garment upon a corpse. Let me submit to you that all artistic expressions, all expressions of the passions and the emotions and a man seeking to identify and to show forth uh, meaningful expressions, praise, worship, artistry, and so forth, if they do not have underlying their expression the glory of the Lord, the works of our God, through His decree taking place in history according to His redemptive plan, if they are not rooted ultimately and inspired from a source such as this, they are, as Spurgeon says, clothing upon a corpse. They are just expressions, they're fancy clothes, they're face paint and makeup that's just painted on a dead person. Ultimately, they will rot, they will disappear, they will not have any transcendent redemptive meaning. This is so important, the Bible teaches us this. Recently, let me give you just one example of discernment that Psalm 92 and these truths give us to uh, judge um, when things are stated or when uh, certain claims and assertions are made along these lines. There recently was, I believe last year, a conference that was very, very troubling that took up the idea of maybe the church needs to revisit issues like sexual identity in light of the changing culture. And they ostensibly wanted to be true to Scripture, but they were treading on very dangerous territory indeed, including presentations like what queer treasures will be found in New Jerusalem. Whatever could that lecture title mean? Well, come to find out what it meant is there are beautiful expressions of art that we just take at face value all through human history. But not all of these were rooted in Psalm 92 type thinking, but they are nevertheless beautiful. Therefore, it must stand to reason that there are some redeemable or beautiful aspects of art that come from different sources and we need to take those into view. This is not the message of Scripture. God's righteous, God in His righteousness is far more jealous than that sensibility would seek to convey. 
There is no beauty. There is no ultimate stand, or there is no ultimate sense of things that are worthy, praiseworthy, virtuous, of good report, if they do not ultimately find their inspiration and source in the beauty of God. Our God and His world, the things that He has touched by His creative hand, these are the standard of objective beauty and glory. These are praiseworthy themes, the works of our God. There is no perversion, there is no alteration, there is no demonic redefinition of any of these terms that is worthy of our attention, ultimately speaking. So let us look to the Scriptures to judge in, our mur- in the murky waters of our culture what is truly worthy of praise. Here's a heading for you. True Sabbath worshipers understand the following. Number one, the act of praise and worship. Verses one through three give us admonitions and instruments of worship. Secondly, true Sabbath worshipers understand the praiseworthy acts of God. The occasion for worship is the work of our Lord. Number three, true Sabbath worshipers understand the excommunicated. They understand that there are worship disqualifications. And fourthly, they understand covenant privilege. That is to say, there are blessings of worship that are enjoyed by those who understand it rightly, whose hearts have been transformed by the Spirit of God, who place their faith ultimately in their Lord Jesus Christ, take the Word of God seriously, and live their life, seek to live their life according to its precepts. So these are the basic Head, or this is the basic framework and structure of my message today. Let's consider, first of all, verses 1 through 3. True Sabbath worshipers understand the act of praise and worship. These are admonitions and instruments of worship that our author gives us in this song form. Verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Let's pause right there, to your name. There is a direction, the object of worship, the purpose, the goal. Telos is a Greek word that means the end for which something is designed. Worship, the artistic expressions, if you will, of man, that which he expresses from his heart through song, through other forms, even in his, the obedience of his day-to-day life, you could expand the concept to include these things, may I submit. It has a purpose in God's plan, a telos, a direction, a goal. It is to be directed to the name of the Lord. That is to say, if something is not worthy of the signature of our God, then it is not true Sabbath worship. It's not true worship at all. If something is not becoming to the Lord, if it does not revolve around and celebrate and is based upon His reputation, the things that define Him and make Him who He is, His glory, His holiness, His justice, His mercy, His compassion, His grace, His power, his, his all-knowingness or omniscience, if these things are not celebrated, then it's not worship worthy of His name, and therefore is not worship at all. It is idolatry. Turn with me to Exodus 34. There is a passage of Scripture that undergirds so much of the Old Testament, and you'll find this in your Bible study, where there are certain key passages, and if you understand them, it helps you put the pieces of the rest of Scripture together. And this is one of those key pieces, Exodus 34, 6. And I believe there are allusions to this in our text today. Though Moses has ascended the mountain, Sinai. He's taken with him two cut stones, tablets, and he is going to receive the Ten Commandments. So Moses cut two tablets of stone, we read in verse 4. Like the first, he rose early in the morning. He went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand 
two tablets of stone. Notice verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Children, you've been studying this. Is this general revelation or special revelation taking place here? That's correct. This is God speaking directly, special revelation, and He's speaking of His own name. We call this in theology divine self-disclosure. God is revealing, He's disclosing Himself to His servant Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, we continue to read in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generations and so on. So what God is doing here is revealing Himself in His character, in His glory to His servant Moses. This is special revelation, divine self-disclosure. It includes His grace and His mercy and also His judgments. Taken together, these are the sum, if you will, or what makes God righteous. These are the aspects of His being that are part and parcel of His name. It is therefore no mistake, it only stands to reason that the themes of faithfulness, steadfast love, and righteous judgments appear over and over and over in the Psalms. Why is this the case? Because God at one time revealed Himself face-to-face almost, as it were, to Moses in this personal connection through sovereign divine revelation, this audible voice from the Lord of glory, I am these things. I am faithful, I am merciful, I have steadfast love, I am the covenant keeper, and I am righteous, and I am a holy judge. Therefore, Psalm 92, in Psalm 92, the author recognizes that it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to His name, O Most High, to declare what? Verse 2, steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So you see, he is taking the, the Word of God as he knew it, Exodus 34, 6, and he is translating it into praise and worship. This is worthy praise to offer to the Lord because he is exalting the Lord with the very terms, the very concepts, and the very language that God had revealed to man about who he is and what his works truly entail. Therefore, the act of praise is an admonition to direct your praises to the name of the Lord and to make sure that your praises and your worship are worthy of the name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord in Psalm 92? Most commonly or most frequently, it is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name. It's the name that sums up all of the concepts that were revealed to us in Exodus 34, the covenant-keeper, the steadfast one, the I Am, the self-sufficient, the Almighty. There's also the term, O Most High, in verse 1. And this is a declaration of supremacy over every other divine claim. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, commandment number one. You shall have no other, what, children? Gods before me. This means that God is the Most High. There is no other beside Him. He is over all. There are other claims to deity. There are false gods, concepts, and the philosophies, the thinking, the pagan religions at that time 
And they would refer to their deities like Baal, for instance, as the Most High. Psalm 92 takes aim at the false ideas of the pagans around and declares that there is only one claim to supremacy, to sovereignty. The Lord, Yahweh, is Most High. After all, can Baal uh, prophesy the future? Has ba- can Baal create the earth? Can Baal extend through his sacrifice uh, provided steadfast love and faithfulness morning and night? No way. Baal is a figment of the imagination of wicked and pagan individuals who in their fallenness have erected something of their experience, their understanding, and nature to be their God in the place of the Lord. Psalm 92, 1 and 2 takes aim at the false religions of the day and declares them to be idolatrous. Christ alone, God alone, and His self-revelation is worthy of our praise. So to His name, praise and worship ought to be directed. We should note, too, that our faithfulness ought to stem from a recognition of the faithfulness of the Lord. Notice verse 2, we are to declare His steadfast love in the morning and His faithfulness by night, if we take the admonition of Psalm 92 to heart. So this is poetic parallel to illustrate all day, every day, or at any point, uh, or at important points during the day. That is to say, the Lord and His glory should be the focus of our attention when we rise in the morning, and should captivate our imagination as we lay our head down at night. The Word of God should be open, if not in its pages before us, certainly in our hearts as we go about our day. Why? Because the faithfulness and the steadfast love of our Lord never ceases and never fails. So you see the consistency of worship, this call to have the, uh, the mind of Christ, as it were, or to have your attention fixed ever so often and indeed uh, without fail, day in and day out, on the Lord and His glory, the source and motivation for that is the faithfulness of our Lord. That is to say, when our minds have been renewed by the faithfulness of our Lord, it begets faithfulness in us. And conversely, it remains a great irony that our acknowledgement of the Lord would be so hit and miss when His steadfast love toward us is forever unfailing. If you struggle with a wandering mind or if you struggle with a hit and miss relationship with the Lord, if your spiritual attention is really only in tune once a week at our worship times here, Psalm 92 would encourage you to remember the steadfast love of the Lord. Is the Lord faithful to you on Monday morning just as He is on Sunday morning? If so, acknowledge that in praise, in thankfulness, in prayer to Him. Is the steadfast love of the Lord available to you on a Tuesday, just as it is on a Sunday? Of course it is. And Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every day of the week, indeed, Saturday, all through the week, seven days, uh, God has remained faithful to you. And so celebrate these things by your attention, acknowledging as much day in and day out morning and night. Consider this admonition in the context of the cloud and fire, the cloud-led and fire-lit exodus of Israel. As Israel leaves, this, this of course would be the acts of God in the back of the psalmist's mind. As Israel leaves Egypt, there is a cloud by day and there is fire by night, representing the provision, the protection, the guiding presence of the Lord of glory. Did the cloud ever lift those 40 years? Did the fire ever desert them those, many, those uh, many decades as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land? No. 
The people complained. They were fickle and unfaithful. Yet the faithfulness, the steadfast love of the Lord, His protection, His guidance, and His promise stood. So the right thing to do at that time would have been to look at the cloud and remember that that cloud has been with us day in and day out. The promises of the Lord are as sure as His guiding us through this wilderness, providing manna for us every single morning. Therefore, it stands to reason that any complaint, any bad attitude, any uh, rebellion against this ever-present steadfast love of the Lord is a horrific sin indeed. Has the Lord's salvation ever deserted you? Have you ever woke up one morning and found Christ's blood insufficient to save? Absolutely not. His sin, or your sin is under His blood day in and day out. And as it were, a single drop of that redemptively powerful, precious blood of our Savior wiped away your sins past, present, and future. And so the memory, your understanding of the gospel and the power of Christ's atonement can encourage you to be faithful to Him each day as you wake up and recognize that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover my sin today and tomorrow and to guide me and protect me, lead me unto glory. These admonitions of praise and worship are to remember. Praise and worship are directed to the Lord's name, are motivated by the same, that His faithfulness begets faithfulness in us. And finally, that we should direct our instruments of praise, our diverse expressions of praise in a harmonious, uh, in a harmonious offering, praise offering unto Him, verse 3. This is to take place in the words of the psalm, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. Here we have three instruments of worship. We have the uh, lute, the harp, the lyre, and these can be taken uh, to represent diverse expressions of glory unto the Lord. There are different instruments of worship that God has given you, for instance, your mind. You can glorify the Lord in your mind by being transformed in the same, by focusing your attention on Scripture, your speech. Your speech it can be an instrument of worship where you confess the truth of the gospel and you exalt the Lord in the conversations that you entertain with others for what He has done for you. Your prayer life, the things that you cry out to God for, can be an expression of worship. And so when these are all focused upon the Lord and His glory, these different instruments or expressions of worship have a melody and harmony to them that increases the beauty and the glory and the worthy expression of our praise unto the Lord. Just as instruments that are well-tuned and in unison on this stage, as it were, a, a picture for us even in music. This is a picture of God Himself. God is three persons, yet He is one God. Is He not? We call this the Trinity. There is a diverse expression in God. There is also a unity. And so our expressions of worship unto the Lord ought to be the same. We ought to glorify our work, our Lord, in our day-to-day work. We ought to glorify Him in our daily devotions. We ought to glorify Him in our conversations one to another. If we do so, we are taking the admonition of Psalm 92 to heart and taking seriously the act of praise and worship and using these instruments to glorify our Lord. Secondly, true Sabbath worshipers understand not just these instruments and admonitions, but also the praiseworthy acts of God. We've mentioned one or two already, but they're focused upon in verses 4 and 5, this idea anyway. Notice in our text, for, our, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work 
At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The title of Psalm 92, as we mentioned, is A Song for the Sabbath. And if you think about day seven, this was the day when God rested from His work. So the glory of the Lord, evident in those six days of work, creating all the material universe, is then appreciated, it's effervescing, it's radiating forth, praise, if you will, and worship unto the Lord. It's echoing the creative genius of the Lord as trees sprout into bloom, as plants begin to grace the entire globe with full flowering, as stars shine forth with the power <clears throat> of a billion, trillion, who knows how many suns, filling the universe with the majesty of our God. And the Sabbath occasion is one where, all, where the Lord in His rest can appreciate, as it were, what He has done. It is a rest from His work and then an attention to His glory. This is kind of the model for us. On the seventh day of the week, we are to rest from our work just as God did from His. And one thing to focus on during this holy day, one day to set it apart and keep the day sacred and holy, is to focus our attention on our day of rest on the mighty works of our Lord. We can focus on His work in creation as I've mentioned, but we can also focus on His work of providence. His providence is His decree unfolding in time whereby He takes care of, He protects, He stewards the earth and all events that take place in the relationships across the span of human generations unto His ultimate purposes and end. We can see the fingerprints of God's sovereignty all through recorded history. And so we can acknowledge the Lord for His glory and His providence. Not only creation, not only providence, but most of all, we can acknowledge the Lord for His work in redemption. I've given you my stab at a biblical philosophy of history. What is history according to the Bible? It is time measured by the progress of redemption. This is a theme all through the pages of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. As we look upon the record of history in the Scriptures, we see the progress of God's plan to save mankind. And so we look upon the work of Christ chiefly as the apex, as the zenith, as the moment, the crescendo of God's work in this regard, and we see all the prophecies leading up to it, and we see the fulfillment of His plan taking place in time, in the incarnation, in the Gospels. And when we do so, we're making note of the praiseworthy acts of God. And we are realizing the occasion for worship. The work of God through history is the occasion for worship. Does this ever grow old? Should it ever become just a familiar thing to us? No, it shouldn't. If it does, that's a problem on the inside. It's not a problem with the works of our God. Here's an illustration for you. So July comes. Well, what do we celebrate on the 4th of July, kids? What do we celebrate on the 4th of July? Close, close. Whoa, good job, Sai. That's impressive. The Declaration of Independence, Sai tells us. Good call. So on the 4th of July, some would point to that as the birth point of our nation. So that's been a long time, right? When was that, 1776 or something like that, roughly speaking? So it's been a couple hundred years plus since that event happened, yet we still celebrate the 4th of July. Why? Well, a rightly understood, a memorial event like this 
is to keep in the cultural memory something that is formative, foundational, and important, and shapes the identity for generations. If you lose the meaning of the 4th of July, you lose the meaning of your country is the idea there, okay? Now, all of this, of course, is subject to the actual significance of that moment that is celebrated. The 4th of July could be argued how much virtue should be attached to it. However, there are events in history that you cannot argue how much virtue should be attached to them because these are pure and holy, sovereign, providential, miraculous acts of God in time. And so every Sabbath, as it were, we memorialize the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. If we forget that moment, if it becomes passé to us, familiar to us, or boring to us, then we have a problem. We are losing our identity. We are drifting from the foundations, from the mooring of who we are and the meaning of all that takes place for our future, God's plan of salvation, so on and so forth. Thus, we can understand the importance of Psalm 92, that we look to the works of God and we allow them to be, or we ask the Lord to change our hearts so that we consider them the chief source of our inspiration our encouragement, our gladness, and our joy. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How many more fireworks are worthy of the event of the creation of this world than the creation of our nation? How much more celebration ought to be attached to the fact that God became man, stooped down low, took on flesh, was born of a virgin, and accomplished everything necessary for your salvation? And you see... The feasting, the joy, and the gladness, as it were, the songs and offerings of praise, the worship that ought to be directed, motivated, inspired by these truths, and directed to the Lord, and the praise of His great name ought to overflow from those whose hearts and minds have been transformed according to the truth. You have made me glad. This almost springs of a well, he sings of a wellspring of joy. Uh, turn with me to a an, uh, a portion of Scripture that illustrates in real time an application of Psalm 92. This would be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, just a little history and background for you. The Israelites, because of their unfaithfulness, had been condemned to exile. There was a promise that the Lord would restore them unto the land, however, and in God's time, that moment finally came. And so, and so now Nehemiah and Ezra... The appointed servants of the Lord have led Israel back to the land. They've rebuilt pieces and parts of the city and the temple, and they're restoring the liturgy of worship and so forth. And here we pick up on their account in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah 8, 9. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. 
And so you see, the prophetic words of their leaders were pointing to the wellspring of joy that was rushing back into their experience as they were obeying the Lord and offering to Him the glory, the praise that He demanded and deserved. When worship, Sabbath worship, was reinstituted into the experience of the Hebrews at this time, they may have initially been sad, oh, what we've lost all these years. They may have been depressed. Think of all of this lost time and all of this exile. And the message was, do not look to the sinful consequences of the past on this day. Instead, remember that this is your source of joy and life and well-being and communion one with another. Look to the Lord, look to His law, and realize that this is a wellspring of happiness, of refreshment, of sustenance, of joy for you. And so with the reestablished liturgy, worship unto the Lord, and the soul of true worship restored unto the people, there is this hope and gladness that springs forth from a people who understand that they are redeemed by the steadfast love and the mercy of their Almighty God. So you see, it was the praiseworthy acts of God that were celebrated once again in the reading of the Word, even for a quarter day, as we see, or a half, yeah, for another day they made confession and worship, we see in the next chapter, and so forth. And so the Word of God and the worship of the Lord ended up expressing this wellspring of joy unto Him. The praiseworthy acts of God is occasion for worship. This is a boundless source, let us remember. How great indeed and works and thoughts is our Lord? Will the well of inspiration ever run dry? No. Psalm 92, 5, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. Our worship text this morning from Romans 11, 33-36, Paul breaks forth in, spot, in a spontaneous outburst of praise. So Romans, the entire book up to this point, has been a legal treatise laying down in precise theology and what I think is the most expansive and airtight argument for the gospel that has ever been written down. Paul lays it all forth, and it's as if he is overflowing with joy, realizing in his heart and soul the implications of this great gospel for which he has explained in detail. And he gets to chapter 11, and he exclaims with his heart refreshed with these truths, how great is our God, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. In the praiseworthy acts of God and salvation, Paul recognizes this boundless source of gladness and joy. So we have the act of worship, admonitions and instruments. We have the praiseworthy acts of God, the occasion for worship. Point number three this morning, True Sabbath worshipers understand worship disqualifications. There are those who are excommunicated from this experience. This is a, these are fearful truths indeed, but they remind us of the necessary character of the Lord, for, or character of the Lord that is necessary for us to understand His holiness, holiness which, is, which include judgment upon His enemies. Note verses 6 through 9 in Psalm 92. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. And behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. What the author is getting at here, and if you look in the original language, 
These words that refer to stupidity and foolishness, they're associated with the uh, behavior and mentality of brute beasts. Um, have you ever seen a cow uh, singing worship unto the Lord in coherent language? Have you ever seen a monkey offer to the Lord a confession, a testimony of how he was saved from his sins? No, it's, a, it's an idea that is totally foreign because the nature of these beings, of these created creatures, it's outside the bounds. They are stupid, they are foolish with respect to this basic thing. And this is how the unbeliever is compared. Those who are blind to the works of God might as well be a cow. They might as well be a primate. They are stupid and foolish. They cannot understand. This is the case of idol worshipers who are blind in their sin. This was true of us as well before the Lord worked a miracle of spiritual understanding when we were born again. Consider the truth that no man can serve two masters. Worship is mutually exclusive. Either you are a brute beast, as it were, you are stupid and foolish, and you worship the things of this world, your vain imaginations, or the, the philosophies that are popular at any given hour, or you worship the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and the, the one who is the engineer and the uh, sacrifice and the author and finisher of your salvation. The majesty of God simply will not occur to you as a significant thing until your eyes have been opened to your sin and the salvation that is offered in God's Word through Christ alone. You will be skeptical of the miraculous record of Scripture. You will remain blind to the providence of God. You will proffer alternative explanations for the works of God in creation, in history, and redemption. You guys are familiar with the alternatives that our world tells us today. They call certain academics, philosophers, scientists, experts, and these are the voices that tell us, no, the way things are is by virtue of chance, time, natural processes, evolution, multiverses, aliens, simulation, theoretical physics, humanism, false gods, false religions, animism, etc. And by all of these means, they suppress the truth with any manner of convoluted philosophy. This is the stupidity and foolishness of wicked man showing on their sleeve. And so this is the state that we find ourselves in today. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who, when they hear of the works of the Lord, especially in their own salvation, are moved to praise Him for His steadfast love. And those who look upon this majestic earth and proffer an alternate, an alternate explanation, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the Lord for the thing that is created, Romans 1 tells us as much. This is what the author of Psalm 92 describes. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. Unbelievers are revelation impaired. They may sprout for a season like grass. They may seem to get away with this. They may seem to prosper for a bit. Verse 7, the wicked may sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, but they are doomed to destruction forever. There is a temporal glory that we sometimes see among the wicked. The Bible is not naive. But it is clear that ultimately their end must be judgment if they do not repent or God uh, in His glory will not prevail. God will prevail. God is God. And therefore, the stupid, the foolish, the blind, the unbeliever, those who worship false idols will ultimately be, ju be judged if they do not repent. This is the vindication of the Lord's glory through judgment and destruction. It says verse 8, But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish, and all evildoers shall be scattered. Do you see the connection there? Because God is on high forever, His enemies are doomed. 
Have you submitted to the Lord by confessing your sins and placing faith in Him? Has He subdued you through the gospel? If not, if you die in this state, you will be subdued by judgment. I fear for that situation. I pray you would as well. If you find yourself unsure of your own salvation, confess your sin, place faith in the Lord. Because He is on high forever, ultimately His enemies, one way or another, their knees will bow, they will be scattered. Final point this morning, the privileges of the covenant. We hear a lot about privilege in our day and age. We hear about majority privilege, white privilege, cisgender, heteronormative male privilege. These are uh, stupid and foolish ideas that are common in a new philosophy that is taking over people's thoughts today. Of course, nothing new under the sun. It's just an old way of confusing the matter. But basically what this philosophy holds through intersectionality, neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, it goes by different postmodernism, so on and so forth, it goes by different names. It's that justice will only be justice when all things are equal. This is not the way that God has ordered and arranged His universe. Justice is justice by God's definition, and He is sovereign over it all. Man cannot wrest from his grip justice and declare himself Lord in his place and come up with a whole different scheme. No, there is something about the righteous in their blessing, those who worship the Lord, that is true and it will be true for all time. Notice verse 12, the righteous flourish like the palm tree. They grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. And this is for a purpose, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. You, he says, have exalted, in verse 10, my horn like that of a wild ox, a horn, a symbol of dominance and strength. You have poured over me fresh oil. Uh, Oil being poured out is a picture of a lavish supply. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies, ultimate victory declared as the Lord finally reveals in due course His plan for His kingdom triumphant. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. There are blessings within the covenant. These are the blessings that attend those who worship. There is a vindication of the Lord's glory in blessing His people, just as there is a vindication in judging His enemies. And these are themes worthy of praise. These are themes about the reality of God's universe, about the nature of our Lord that ought to inspire songs of worship and a sacrifice of praise to our Lord. This is true human flourishing. Do not be fooled by anything lesser. Abraham and Sarah bore fruit in their old age, not by virtue of anything other than the sovereignty of God, causing a barren womb to be full with child, causing a man a hundred years old to receive the promised son and therefore the promise of being a father of many nations. This is the uh, eventual blessing, the covenant privilege of our Lord and the flourishing of our God. On your own time, study, if you would, Matthew 13. These are the kingdom parables that Jesus proclaimed. They bear similar language to verses 12 through 14. There is the parable of the sower, followed by the parable of the weeds, followed by the parable of the mustard seed that grows into a great tree in which birds nest in the branches. This is Jesus reiterating these themes all the way back from Psalm 92, that the righteous flourish like the palm tree, But God's enemies will be plucked up like weeds, if you will. They shall perish. They shall be scattered. On the other hand, the righteous flourish in the courts of our God, in the place of His meeting with man, where reconciliation is established through the sacrifice, the atoning blood. At that place, roots go down deep into streams of living water, 
and fruit burst forth from the branches. And they, these still bear fruit in old age. That is to say, uh, under the blessings of the covenant, we are not subject to the curse the same way we once were. But there is, in fact, even more for us than fruitfulness in our old age in this life. There is indeed fruitfulness even unto eternal life. Let us close with this point. To what end? Why has God blessed those who are within the covenant? Why does God answer prayers uh, along the way in sometimes miraculous manner, preserving for His people the instruments of worship? It is that they might honor Him and glorify Him. And at this point, Psalm 92 comes full circle to its introductory theme. Verse 15, to declare, in other words, the privileges of the covenant are given their blessings that come upon God's people in order that they might declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Just like verses 1 and 2, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to His name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So we come full circle to the primary aim of this, uh, of this psalm and the meaning of our lives as, it is, as they are lived out, that we give glory, praise, and worship to the Lord inspired by His mighty works through history. This is why we are here. This is why God has saved us, to the praise of His great name. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for the admonition and the encouragement that Your Holy Scriptures bring. We pray that you would change us by the proclamation of the same into the image of Christ our Lord, that our praise, our expressions uh, would be more pleasing unto you, that our affections and our attention would be captivated by the mighty works of our God, that we would never grow tired of hearing but always excited to learn more of your work in creation, in providence, in redemption, that we might give praise to your holy name. And Father, we pray that the message of truth that is exclusively found in your holy word would bring conviction on the lost and sinners, that they might join us in the privileges of the covenant, renouncing and confessing their sin and placing themselves at the mercy of Christ and His shed blood for the remission of their sins. Do all of this, we pray, that your name might be glorified, your kingdom might advance, and your people might be equipped to be able servants and ambassadors of you, even in this day and hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.